In the year 2232, the death of a world-famous robotics mogul is about to shake Manhattan. The victim's fiancé, brother, sister, business partner, their company's first creation, and a top-secret government squad will race against time to figure out who's to blame, because any one of them could be the next to die. July 28, 2232. Maybe I deserve this. Maybe I am responsible for his death, and maybe this is my punishment, but I can't die now. Not when I don't know. Not when I have so many questions. A shadow played on the carpet beneath the door, the shuffling of feet outside in the corridor, accompanied by the pressing of buttons on a keypad. As her heart pounded, Lila crossed to the room's back doors, turning off the lights at the switch beside them. She opened one door and slipped out onto the balcony as it closed automatically behind her. She surveyed her surroundings to find that she'd spent longer than she'd realized in the bathroom. Night had fallen over Manhattan. There was no easy way to the ground. She leaned over the railing, searching manically for options. The highway below was backed up with traffic. Hover cars, hover cycles, and pedestrians stretched as far as the eye could see, lights ascending through the vertical layers of traffic like a steadily shifting constellation. She heard the scanner beep somewhere behind her, and her breath caught in her throat as she realized how little time she had. Concealed by the wall separating the balcony from the connected room, Lila was invisible to whoever was inside, but how long that would remain true was in question. The balcony, formerly shrouded in darkness, was now bathed in light. Lila's eyes widened in horror as footsteps signaled someone's approach. No. No one else would understand. Whatever she had done, she was sorry. Beyond all words, she was sorry. But she couldn't expect everyone to be so forgiving. Would they really believe her? She doubted it. Jump. Jump, you'll be fine. Lila edged to the side of the balcony farthest from the door. It's insane, so why does it feel like the safest option? Once more she looked down and, taking a deep, shaky breath, she threw herself over the edge. One week earlier. Damien Lawrence had given his approval to a number of morally questionable things in his 31 years of life, but he did not consider himself to be a bad man. On the contrary, compared to several of the people he had met over the course of a highly publicized career in robotics technology, he believed he was a very good man. His questionable choices had been made only in the interest of serving a higher purpose that might benefit the world at large. He had worked diligently to raise Lawrence Dodson Enterprises, the company he founded with his brother and best friend more than a decade earlier, to prominence despite the generous sum he had inherited from his parents upon their deaths. The technology his company developed was designed at its core to help the world. The androids constructed by LDE were advanced enough to be considered fully autonomous and capable of personal growth and development, 
and they took on positions in society that allowed them to assist humans and preserve life. It was in the interest of helping someone that Damien had agreed to meet with the man seated across from him in one of the red booths at the cafe down the street from LDE's Manhattan headquarters. In the message he'd sent requesting the meeting, the man had called himself Oliver Aswan. Oliver's hair was white blonde, his eyes of such a startlingly bright emerald hue that Damien had known at the instant of their meeting that the other man could not be human. Fifteen years actively studying robotics had trained Damien to see through convincing models to the truth of their nature. He thought briefly of how much more human-like the eyes of his own androids were in comparison to Oliver's, and felt a momentary surge of pride before reminding himself that this android's creators, Genesis Tech, if you were to guess, were not his immediate focus. Thank you for seeing me, said Oliver, reaching across the table to shake Damien's hand firmly. As he smiled, the upturn of his mouth drew Damien's focus to a long, jagged scar running from Oliver's left temple to the edge of his lips. No, thank you for writing me, said Damien, returning the handshake before folding his hands and resting them on the table. It isn't often that anyone contacts me, Derek, or Eddie personally with questions about our research, and I'd love to know how it could benefit a rival company's android, he added mentally before continuing. What can I do for you? Oliver drew in a deep breath, drumming his fingertips on the table as he appeared to consider. I wondered, he began after a moment, if you've ever done work on transferring consciousness. For instance, he pressed on quickly, leading Damien to wonder if his own shock had been too apparent on his face. If an android were to be damaged beyond repair, would it be possible to shift his memories into a new body? Damien hesitated, appraising the android's cool, calculating demeanor and the hardness his gaze had taken on despite the smile still present on his lips. Whatever the reason for the question, Damien was overcome by a sudden reluctance to answer it. It might be possible, he conceded at last, hoping his noncommittal answer would be sufficient. Oliver nodded thoughtfully. But it isn't something you've experimented with. Damien shook his head. No, we haven't seen the need to. Generally speaking, those who purchase our androids have taken care of them if they're concerned about keeping their minds intact. What about transferring an android consciousness into a human body? Damien froze, his hands tensing on the table. What? He asked blankly. Would something like that be possible? Pressed Oliver. He leaned a bit closer across the table, a dangerous glint in his emerald eyes. Uh, I don't know. We've never experimented on humans. Damien shook his head and started to stand. His mind had begun to swim with memories he tried for years to repress, and he found himself no longer able to look directly at Oliver. Instead, he directed his next words at the space just above the android as he took a step away from the booth. I'm sorry, I've just remembered that I was supposed to meet someone for an interview. He turned away and started for the exit, and Oliver's reply reached him as his hand rested on the glass door leading to the bustling street outside with its vertical layers of hovercar traffic. 
I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Damien did not acknowledge the statement, instead pushing the door and stepping outside into the twilight without looking back. The security room on the ground floor of Lawrence Dodson Enterprises was largely plated in chrome, as was most of the building's interior. Andrew Stark had worked for months since his placement within the company to gain proper clearance to enter this room unaccompanied, and at last he had the equipment and walls lined with computers and telesenses to himself. The holographic screens dominated the upper half of the room above the chrome plates covering the bottom, and currently all but one projected a rapidly changing series of images captured by each of the building's security cameras. The only screen set apart from the deluge of intercut footage was the computer directly in front of where Andrew sat, rapidly typing strings of code that would allow the building's camera feed to be transmitted to his superiors in real time. You'd better appreciate this, Rachel he muttered, leaning back in his chair as he completed the code. He waited a few moments longer as the images of LDE's premises flickered across the screens, and then he pulled free the rectangular drive he'd planted in the side of the computer before him. Immediately the images ceased. Each screen in the room went dark, leaving Andrew with only the light spilling under the door from the corridor outside. He pocketed the drive and rose from his chair and opened the door slipping out into the hall toward the back door. He nodded his goodbyes to the remaining security officers as he went and strode into the lot where he left his car upon arriving shortly after dawn. He pulled open the small vehicle's black door and climbed into his seat, and not three seconds passed before the door across from him opened. Andrew's hand twitched toward the glove compartment, but he forced himself not to react, instead reaching with both hands for the steering wheel as he stared out the windshield. The sound of someone settling into the seat beside him was followed by that of the door closing. You really haven't improved your parking, have you? Andrew let out a breath he hadn't realized he'd been holding. I'm not sure who I was expecting, he said, but... Whoever it was, you're stuck with me. Andrew glanced to the passenger seat to find himself facing a young blonde. Her ruffled lavender blouse and slacks looked thoroughly foreign on her, but he supposed that was because he'd only ever seen her in uniform. I'm not complaining, Charlie. I'm just confused. Have my orders changed? She shook her head. She wants you to keep doing what you're doing. It seems to be working, doesn't it? Andrew shrugged noncommittally. He had no reason not to trust Charlotte Vela, and he knew she was an immensely skilled agent, but he didn't particularly want to admit his concerns about his mission to her. He would save those for the woman in charge. So what brings you here? He asked. McNair's getting restless. Andrew closed his eyes and let out a long sigh. Isn't he always? Yes, but now it looks like we have a timetable. He's pulling the plug at the end of July. Andrew's eyes snapped open and his hands tightened on the steering wheel. He can't do that. Of course he can, said Charlie, shaking her head. You know he can do anything he wants, but I was sent to tell you that even if we can't stop this and he shuts us down, you aren't to report back to West Point. You need to stay here and complete your mission. Go radio silent if you have to, until one of us comes to find you. But whatever you do, do not blow your cover. We're too close this time. Andrew nodded slowly. Understood. Tell her I won't fail. Charlie gave him a half smile as she opened the passenger door and climbed out of the car. 
She doesn't expect you to. After Charlie had slammed the door and started across the lot, Andrew looked out the window to his left and the towering chrome building dominating much of his visual field. Looks like you're not getting rid of me, he muttered. Are you really leaving all of these for me to go through while you head off to California? Damien glanced to his brother across the stack of hollow files stationed between them on the sofa and fixed a half-smile on the younger man. It's not like I expect you to do all of them, Derek. The sales projections alone would take weeks if you tried to work through them by yourself. But you can take your pick of what you work on while I'm gone. It'll only be a week. Then, when I get back, you can complain about it all you want. Derek rolled his eyes, drumming his fingers against the file he'd taken off the stack to rest on his knees. The file was barely a millimeter thick, and the holographic list of company storage warehouses projected a few inches above it reacted to Derek's touch when he flicked the image's corner to scroll to the next several names. I was going to offer you another drink, he said, but you blew it. Damien chuckled. I think you may be worse at taking a joke than Desi, and that's not an easy feat to accomplish. Derek let out a short, humorless laugh. <laughs> Did you hear that another of her friends got arrested? The DeMarco girl, she got more drunk than usual at one of their parties and parked her car in the middle of a hotel lobby. Not the one her parents own, I guess? Of course not. They wouldn't have pressed charges. Damien sighed heavily. Desi needs people in her life who actually plan to do something other than drink away their money. Do you think she's going to start listening to you now? Damien said nothing. He lifted a hollow file from the stack and stared at the android blueprints that projected upward at his touch, pretending he hadn't coded the schematics himself and wasn't therefore completely familiar with them. He'd tried to guide his sister for years, but each time she shrugged off his efforts, apparently determined to forge her own path even if it led her straight off a bridge. You're not just waiting here while I go off to California, by the way, he said, forcing thoughts of his sister from his mind to focus on his brother. I do need you to go through some of these while I'm gone, but I'm only leaving a few days before you. We've got a meeting with Hover in Chicago on the 21st, and Eddie's already informed me he'd rather saw off his foot than deal with them again. That leaves you. Do they want to discuss putting our AI in their cars again? That was the stupidest thing I've ever- No, I've already told them we aren't on board for that. But I think they want to discuss cutting a deal for Android use. For models or test drivers? I have no idea. I tuned out about halfway through the call. Derek raised a brow with a half-smile. I don't think you could be less helpful if you tried. Oh, I am trying. Damien slid off the sofa, stretching as he moved. I have to get out of here. I can only think about work so much in one day. But when I get back, we're taking time off and going somewhere. I don't care where it is, but we're forcing Eddie to take a day off too, regardless of how he'll claim he doesn't need one. I don't think anyone has ever needed a vacation more said Derek, standing. He's already trying to plan next year's expo, and figure out how to buy Genesis tech. He's gonna go gray before 40. Damien shook his head, leaning forward to embrace his brother, who clapped him on the back. Try and enjoy Chicago, okay? Honestly, I'd rather be going there. Sure, just get back soon. 
Derek glanced to the stack of files as he drew back, his apprehension plain on his features. Where'd you get this one? Damien watched as Ravenna lifted her head from his shoulder to follow with her gaze the line his finger traced across her thigh and the faint white line trailing along her skin. Lips tightening in a slight frown, she returned her hazel eyes to his face. Seattle. She said. That's a long way out. Did you stay there for long? She shook her head, her dark hair tickling his chest as she moved. Just a few days. Long enough to do the job. He sighed, and for a moment, the only sounds were those of her breathing and the ancient clock ticking in the hallway. He couldn't imagine the things she'd seen, or done, as he reminded himself as sparingly as was possible. It would not benefit him to dwell on her past. He'd already concluded that nothing he learned about the time before they'd been reunited would influence his feelings for her, and he didn't plan to change his mind on the matter. He reached for her hand where it rested on his chest and lifted it to his lips before reaching out to touch the ring on her fourth finger. When do you want to tell them? He asked. She shrugged, eyeing the ring with visible hesitation. Is there ever going to be a good time? Any time is perfect. He twined his fingers through hers and reached out to brush her hair from her cheek. Everyone's going to be thrilled. When she opened her mouth, he assumed she planned to argue, and he continued, My brother thought the world of you back in school, and my sister already knows. What are you afraid of? Ravenna said nothing for several moments, her focus on their entwined hands resting on Damien's chest. When she spoke at last, her voice was quiet. You already know that, she said. I'm not who I was when I left, Damien. No, you're not. He leaned down to press a kiss to her forehead before reaching for the blankets and pulling them upward over himself and Ravenna. But you're back. And I love you too much to give a damn what people say. She smiled slightly and laid her head against his shoulder once again, pressing a kiss to his skin before closing her eyes. I love you. And I suppose we can tell them after you get back from your trip, if you really think it's time. I do, he said with a grin. He gave her hand a soft squeeze. Your ride's here. Desi looked up at the officer who had spoken, his gaze fixed somewhere over her head and his tone indescribably bored. One of the younger officers had been stealing glances at her since her arrival, but the man who held out her confiscated purse for her to take was apparently unmoved by her celebrity status, even though her face was plastered across the tabloid resting on the counter with the words Lawrence Disappointment. She took the purse with a flat word of thanks, her head pounding, and followed the pointing of the older officer toward the front door, which she shouldered open to find a slate gray hover car awaiting her on the curb. As she started down the steps, the car's owner stepped forward from where he'd been reclining against its side to open the passenger door for her with a slight smile. Her cheeks burned. Desi fought hard not to let her gaze drift down his body. She forced her eyes to stop at the simple black tie tucked into his gray suit jacket and not continue on to admire the strong arms and broad chest she knew that jacket concealed. She brushed past him and climbed into her seat without a word. Why would they send him? She thought, uncertain as to whether her agitation had begun to worsen her headache or the opposite. 
She closed her eyes and rubbed her temples to ease away some of the pressure, and she only realized the seat beside her had become occupied when Eddie spoke. Are you all right? Desi shrugged noncommittally, her eyes still closed. Were my brothers too busy to bail me out themselves? Damien's still out of town until tomorrow, and Derek won't be back until the day after. With a heavy sigh that did nothing to ease the throbbing in her skull, Desi opened her eyes, finally allowing herself to look at him again. She'd always found Eddie handsome, with his short, dark hair and penchant for suits. His eyes, though, had always seemed to see through her completely. The acts she'd put on to hide within herself after the loss of her parents had never appeared to faze him. She'd let him past every wall she'd constructed once, and she couldn't allow herself to do it again. He started to turn his head toward her as he drove, and after the first glimpse of his gray irises, she turned away to stare out the window beside her into the night and the blur of passing buildings. Sorry to disappoint you, he muttered. The corners of her lips twisted downward, and she barely resisted the urge to face him. No, I appreciate you coming to get me. Thank you. The pause followed, and the only sound was that of the outside traffic. Desi, I have told you that I'm here if you need to talk, haven't I? About absolutely anything. She nodded, still refusing to look at him. Appreciate it. And Desdemona, please. Desdemona. He repeated with a sigh. Yes, of course. She watched the world outside as the car turned a corner and the streets became familiar. The apartment buildings stretched toward the sky on either side of the road, and the traffic had thinned to one layer since the morning's rush hour commute. She'd known where the police station was located. This had been her first trip to it, despite what the tabloids might have suggested to the contrary. Had either of her brothers been the one to retrieve her from the station, she knew she would have been undergoing a severe berating and an examination of every poor decision she'd ever made, particularly if Damien had been the one to find her. He'd become her legal guardian after their parents' deaths, and despite the fact that she was now 24, he had shown no sign of confidence in her ability to self-govern. Are you really surprised? Snapped a voice at the back of her head, and in order to turn her attention from it, Desi looked to Eddie. How mad is Damien? She asked quietly. Eddie shrugged. He didn't say. Honestly, I think he's more worried about you than anything. Desi sighed, drumming her fingertips against the console between the seats. I'm fine. He glanced toward her and she met his eyes for a moment before looking away, directing her attention out the windshield. I didn't actually do anything illegal, she continued, hoping this was slightly more convincing than her last statement. Marley was the one who was going to try to drive and her boyfriend tripped into the table. I offered to pay for it, but- Drunk and disorderly conduct. That's what they're charging you with. Desdemona, I can smell the alcohol on you from here. She sighed, tipping her head back to stare at the roof of the car as she blinked back the tears stinging her eyes. I don't know what I'm doing, she muttered. Several seconds passed in silence before Eddie spoke softly. What do you mean? Now or in general? Either. I... I don't know. Damien and Derek both have everything figured out. They've been working on the damned company since they were in high school, and you've been right there with them, all of you completely sure what you want out of life and how to get it. And what did I do? I studied four years of theater and haven't even been to an audition in months. And what the hell did those robotics classes do for me? You can't honestly tell me the three of you would even think about hiring me. She hadn't intended to pour out her soul to Eddie, not after the last time she'd allowed herself to tell him far too much. And she wasn't certain whether her confessional had been incited by the alcohol or had been building beneath the surface and awaiting a chance to explode. Still, she couldn't find the will to stop speaking now that she'd begun. And Damien always has this... This disappointment in his eyes when he looks at me, and I can't handle it. He's got the job he always wanted, and the love of his life, and- Wait, what? Desi blinked, lowering her gaze from the roof to return it to Eddie, who was watching her with a frown. She closed her eyes and rubbed her temple, internally screaming at herself for letting out the words. I didn't say that. Pretend it didn't happen. What do you mean? 
Damien hasn't mentioned seeing anyone. He hasn't even told Derek about her. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and managed to recognize her. She's not exactly the same as she was when she left, but... Desi froze, her cheeks burning in the darkness. She was certain that if the lighting were better, her embarrassment would be as clear on her pale skin as her intoxication was in her speech. He's going to kill me. I'm so... She let out a frustrated sigh and dropped her head into her hands. When she left? You don't mean Ravenna. Desi lifted her face to stare at Eddie, not bothering to keep her regret out of her eyes, which had begun to fog with moisture. Please don't tell him I said anything, she implored, her voice cracking on the last word. Eddie looked toward her once again, his gaze apologetic. He reached out to rest his hand on hers, and despite her first impulse, she did not draw back from the touch. I won't. You have my word. She nodded stiffly and turned away to stare out the window once again. Good, she thought. Damien doesn't need another reason to hate me right now. Desdemona, can we please talk about the night? We can't. The remainder of the drive passed in silence, and when the car reached her apartment, Desi elected to blame the quick squeeze she gave Eddie's hand on the blend of intoxication and a burgeoning migraine. Eddie heaved a sigh and stared at the holographic readout in front of him without seeing a single projected word. He hated that no matter how he tried, he couldn't stop thinking about her. Her beautiful blue eyes, her bright smile, the perfect softness of her lips against his, the warmth of her skin. Stop it, he ordered himself. Now. He closed his eyes and lowered his head into his hand. What good will it do? She doesn't love you. For a moment, it had seemed as though she'd loved him. She'd let him see her in a way he liked to think no one else had. Desi had always been private about her innermost emotions, and even if it had been a momentary lapse in judgment on her part, she had confided in him. His jaw tightened. He'd wanted to tell her for years now how much she meant to him, how much he cared for her. He'd finally found a way to show her, and if only for a moment, she'd shown him something similar. Or perhaps she'd just wanted the night of comfort and the illusion of reciprocated feelings. Perhaps she hadn't actually cared for him or expected him to truly care for her at all. She wouldn't use you that way. Eddie was certain the feeling of nausea that had settled in the pit of his stomach was a permanent one. He'd been unable to escape it since the morning Desi had left his bedroom with an apologetic glance and a few words about how they couldn't sleep together again. He couldn't let her go that easily. He cared too much. He loved her too much. I have to do right by you, he muttered. Eddie had let the hollow file fall from his grasp, and it clanged against the shining metal surface of his desk. He pushed his chair backward and slid to his feet, his jaw set and his eyes fixed on the panel set into the wall opposite him. Within a few strides, he had reached the panel, and he pressed his palm to the scanner. Welcome, Eddie. He said nothing in reply to the machine's automated female voice. He focused his thoughts on pulling forth the proper model from the storage vaults in the warehouse's unmapped depths. Since LDE's creation, Eddie had been able to access and store any prototype he was so inclined to attempt, as had Derek and Damien. Eddie had no idea what the others might have stored within the warehouse, and the knowledge that they couldn't access his private experiments had helped him to sleep on several tortured nights. He concentrated on using the neural interface to bring Mia from her place in the basement level of the warehouse's storage area. Within moments, the silver doors set into the wall just to the left of where Eddie stood cracked open, and the familiar metallic pod pushed through the opening. The whoosh hiss of decompression broke the silence pressing in on Eddie. 
He watched as the pod's glass lid began to defog. It's my fault, Eddie breathed, but I will do everything I can to fix it. Ravenna yawned, shifting the blankets aside as she stretched and blinked in the morning light. She propped herself up on her elbows and scanned the bedroom, and her eyes alit on the calendar projected on the wall. July 26th, she thought, her lips twisting downward. He should have been back last night. Drawing in a deep breath, Ravenna instructed herself to be calm. Maybe he's downstairs. This thought at the forefront of her mind, she swung her legs over the edge of the bed and stood. The polished wood of the floor cold against her bare feet as she made her way into the hall and descended the stairs to the first floor. She paused in the foyer, straining her ears for a moment against the silence of the house before it became too much to bear. Damien? She called. When the echo of her voice had faded from the high-ceilinged room, the silence returned. Are you here? A glance at the clock on the mantel told her that it was nearly ten. She hadn't expected Damien to depart for work until at least noon, but perhaps he had gone early. The house was quiet, almost eerily so. Ravenna shook her head, attempting to clear it of the notion that something was amiss. Nothing's wrong, I can drop by at the office later and see him. Still, these thoughts did nothing to ease her mind. She sighed, I'll call him after breakfast. Even from down the hall, she could hear that the telesense was alive and transmitting a news story. She recalled easily the voice of the reporter. If the telesense is on, Damien must be home. Ravenna smiled, deciding this logic was sound. She left the device on the previous night, believing he would arrive shortly. But it still can't be on from what I was watching. It has to be him. She altered her course, avoiding the kitchen and making her way into the living room. Damien? Only silence greeted her. She crept forward, leaving the doorway to stand at the heart of the plush, off-white carpet as her gaze fell on telesense. Her body froze as she was overwhelmed by the feeling of ice flooding her veins. The scene projected before her unfolded from an aerial view. A group of reporters stood together outside the Lawrence Dotson Enterprises office building. News vans and police cars littered the curb, and a crowd of pedestrians was beginning to form behind a line of yellow tape enforced by officers. This wasn't supposed to happen, said Rachel. No one else was supposed to die. She stared down into her coffee cup and shook her head. Her shoulders were slumped and she would not raise her eyes to meet Andrew's. He knew she blamed herself. She always did when something went wrong. He had tried time and time again to convince her that the division had been unable to be controlled completely since its creation. When so many independent variables were at play, the events the division had been created to forestall had been, unfortunately, unstoppable. This would have been true no matter how capable a leader was in charge, but on that point, Andrew had not yet managed to make Rachel see reason. He'd watched her put out fires since the day she'd taken over the organization that her mother had begun during Rachel's childhood. Andrew could not begin to understand how difficult it must have been to grow up with the pressures of being watched by the nation as Rachel had been. He couldn't imagine it, but he tried. He reached out and wrapped his hands around hers and she looked at him at last. Her green, almond-shaped eyes were pained and the sight of them twisted his stomach. Rachel, it couldn't be helped. We knew this was going to be dangerous. So many people are already dead because of her that adding one more to the list can't be that surprising. 
Rachel's long red hair fell in waves around her face as she shook her head. She looked so much like her mother, down to the same guilt in her eyes. She doesn't deserve it, but it's there. But someone so well known? Rachel pressed. It's exactly what we can't handle right now. McNair already wants my head on a spike. Well, he'll have to go through me first. The corner of her mouth twitched up in a half smile and she replaced the cup on the table without drinking from it. The sounds of early morning coffeehouse chatter filled the air and for a moment that was all Andrew heard. Rachel watched him closely for several seconds and then slipped her hands from his and sat folding them in her lap. Not here, she said. Andrew frowned. Rachel, I, I don't understand why you Because are. it's not safe. We're in enough danger as it is without the world finding out about this. Is it wrong that I don't care? Rachel closed her eyes. Soon, I promise. Did the cameras transmit anything to us? Andrew tensed. Our system was shut down. She's the only one who would have known to look for. I know you. The voice drew the pair's focus away from their hushed conversation. Beside the table stood a middle-aged woman with frizzy gray hair. Her gaze was fixed on Rachel, whose expression was weary. Do you? The woman's head bobbed with her nod. You're President Hartley's daughter. It's great to see you in New York. How's your mother? Rachel smiled thinly. <laughs> She's well. Thank you. Andrew's mouth twitched. He knew that was a lie. Isabella was living at home under the constant supervision of a nurse after an attempt on her life shortly after the end of her second term in office. Some of her injuries had healed, but the attack had left her wheelchair-bound and traumatized. Andrew had accompanied Rachel on several occasions to visit her mother, and he knew she disliked discussing the matter. I hate to bother you, but could I have your autograph? Stiffly, Rachel nodded. Sure. Do you have a pen? The woman began to dig through her purse. In her hurry, she dropped a pack of gum and a number of trinkets, which Andrew slid out of his chair and knelt to help her gather. She thanked him and sat a pen and a napkin on the table. As Andrew retook his seat, Rachel signed the napkin and passed the pen back to the woman. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. Rachel stared off into the distance while the woman returned to her table. She doesn't need to think about Isabella right now. It's only going to make her feel worse. Andrew laid his hand on Rachel's. She blinked and glanced down at the point of contact before returning her attention to his face. I need to get to Washington and start on damage control. She said. Do you want me to come with you? I don't want you to have to deal with McNair alone, and Charlie said he's getting near the end of his rope with us. Rachel shook her head. No, I need you to stay here. Stay focused on your mission, Andrew. We'll get through this. Rachel stood and pushed in her hovering chair before turning for the door. Andrew glanced at her coffee, which she had left untouched, and followed her to the exit. They stepped out onto the crowded Manhattan street, where hover cars passed by in congested, stacked layers of traffic. I'll keep you posted, said Andrew. He kissed her swiftly on the cheek and turned away before she could comment, and they parted. Andrew started down the sidewalk, which was packed with people in the process of their morning commute. Andrew slipped through the crowd, his button-down shirt and slacks suggesting he was simply a member of the masses. He followed the typical Manhattan bustle for a few blocks until his destination came into view. The angle of his approach had obscured exactly how large the cluster of people in front of Lawrence Dodson Enterprises was, and as he took in the immensity of the crowd, he sighed. So it begins. Andrew maneuvered between reporters from rival news stations and craned his neck for a better view of the platform that had been assembled for the press conference. He had arrived just in time. A tall man in a black business suit and hair nearly as dark had stepped onto the platform, flanked by security guards. The anxious buzz of the crowd died immediately as his presence was recognized, 
and a tense silence fell. The man's expression was troubled as he stepped behind the podium at the center of the platform. Eddie Dotson, LDE co-president. As you are most likely aware, Dotson said into the microphone adjoined to the podium, sparing a glance down at the place Andrew knew a screen would be projecting the speech. Lawrence Dodson Enterprises has suffered a tragic loss. Last night, July 25th, 2232, my dear friend Damian Lawrence was murdered. Dodson paused. Andrew pulled at the collar of his shirt, finding the tension surrounding him nearly as stifling as the summer heat. Damien's brother Derek returned this morning from a business trip to discover that Damien had been shot twice and that his wounds were fatal. As of this moment, we do not have any leads as to who might be responsible, but I assure you that we are doing everything we can to find out. LDE's Manhattan facility will be closed to the public for the time being, pending further investigation of the crime scene. The production of androids will also cease until the police have had more time to get to the bottom of this. A massive hand shot into the air, but Dodson shook his head. I'm sorry, but that's all we know. No further comment will be given on the matter at this time. Thank you all. The group of reporters exploded in shouts. Excuse me, excuse me. Andrew backed away into the crowd. 